Welcome to the Artistic Foodies, the show that explores life through the lens of art and food. I'm Abbas Muhammad. And I'm Irfan Raidan. And today we are wrapping up season two, an ongoing conversation about Muslims and the media. We talk with Asad Ali Jafri about representation, community building, and of course, his favorite food. So be sure to listen all the way through. Asad Ali Jafri is a cultural producer, community organizer, and interdisciplinary artist. Using a grassroots approach and global perspective, Asad connects artists and communities across imagined boundaries to create meaningful engagements and experiences. Asad has over two decades of experience honing an intentional and holistic practice that allows him to take on the role of artist and administrator, curator, and producer, educator and organizer, mentor and strategist. I also want to add on a personal note that Asad has been my mentor for over five years as I built and grew my nonprofit organization, Gamma. Our latest Gamma project called Khamsa was a phenomenal seven week long art gallery in Oakland focused specifically on the five stages of grief. In addition to a hip hop album also called Khamsa that was released on October 23rd by Guled Muse and the Brian Simmons Music Group. We have also interviewed Guled in the past, so please do check out that episode too. And now without further ado, let's begin. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast, uh, not only because we're wrapping up season two and it's the season finale, but also because of how closely we have worked together within the art space. You know, uh, I think it is um, it is not an exaggeration to say I wouldn't be where I am in, in the arts today if it wasn't through your mentorship and your guidance. And, you know, like l- this is like a physical manifestation of where we've come. We've got the, the printed flyers for Khamsa. And on the back, this is such a like really proud moment. There's like a list of the artists, Guled's name, my name, the Doris Duke logo, the Gamma logo. We've got Zara on here, Miriam. We've got, you know, Fahad, like all these people that, um, that, that have been involved with Gamma. And, you know, seeing like our name next to Nubby's name. Also, like I remember when we first started talking about Nubby and his, his artwork. And now he is actually... Um, going to be displaying a piece uh, that has alums on it as as a part of representation of anger in the five stages of grief. Um, and so really, we've come a really long way. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. But, you know, for, for most of the listeners who don't know you, of course, they're obviously missing out in a major way. But who who are you? <laughs> who are like, who is Asad Ali Jafri beyond the bios and everything? That's a, that's a good question to ask. That's a self-reflective, looking in the mirror type of question to ask, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just another person that may have some ideas that I've been given, blessed to have the space to experiment with. Um, and when you were talking about the Khamsa project specifically, what came to mind was, yes, this is the culmination. How long has Gamma been around now? Uh, f- six years almost. So let's say five, just to make it Khamsa, right? Um, so in, in, the, in five years, this is manifested, right? And to me, like a lot of times we think about things in, in really short term, 
But I feel like if I was involved in that in any way, that's who I am. You know what I mean? Like I am all of those people that you mentioned because I feel like that's the real work of building communities and thinking about how we imagine ourselves working, living, creating, being a part of something, whatever that something is. And I feel like at the end of the day, that's what I want to be. I want to be somebody who's like part of that catalyst, chemical reaction, equation, magic making that happens that years from now, we look back and be like, oh, wait a minute, this all came together in this way. And I honestly don't even need to be part of that anymore. It's, all, it's almost like I like being the ingredient that just disappears sometimes. Um, and, 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 and through that chemical reaction no longer exists. And the only reason I like to be involved is because I love when a conversation, an idea turns into something like an entire project that then goes on to change some people's lives in some way, and then has this effect that keeps just magnifying over and over again. And to me, that's like, that's life, that's a spiritual calling, that's all of those manifestations in one. And I know that's a very non-answer, but that's what you're going to get from me today. <laughs> I mean, who are you is, is practically a non-question, really. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I, I love that you mentioned Catalyst. I'm going to nerd out for a bit here and, and, and go back to my OCHEM classes because, uh, you know, you can have like a beaker with various different chemical reagents, but they're just not reacting. They're not connecting. They're kind of just swimming past each other in this beaker until the catalyst comes. And sometimes the catalyst is just has the right shape to where each of the reagents can latch onto that catalyst and through that be connected to each other. And then boom, the reaction happens. And maybe the beaker, the liquid in the beaker changes color and you can physically see oh, wow, this new thing has been created. And when you're like, what is this new thing? Well, so-and-so artist was involved. This is the artwork of so-and-so musician. But then the catalyst is never really mentioned. And what's really fantastic about that, uh, uh, about this concept is the catalyst oftentimes doesn't get used up in the process. You can actually remove it and put it into the next beaker and then the next beaker and then the next beaker. And that, that goes on. So I love, I love that you used catalyst and got to nerd out here for a little bit. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I, I love digging deeper into that. And I, and I think you've explained it in a really, really nice way. Yeah, I so I love that. So, uh, bring, so bringing that into a little bit less of the abstract and more of the concrete. What 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 work do you find yourself doing these days, and and how did you get here? What was your journey here? Those are really good questions too. I mean, right now I identify myself by the labels that other people like to put on things, which I don't think are comprehensive. But I'll say I'm an artist. I'll say I'm a cultural producer, organizer, a curator. Which actually I feel like curators should just be abolished completely but that's for another reason. Um, so so I, I do think that I do all of those things in some way. And how I got here was kind of in a backwards way. I think I've always been good at bringing people together and thinking about like the connection of ideas, resources to people. And I've also really been into the arts in general, mostly music at first, but across the board at this point. And I think that started um, way early, like in childhood. Um, and I never knew that that was something I could do like as a primary identity, let's put it that way. Because I'm not going to say something I could do to make a living because I don't believe in that transactional methodology anymore. But let's just say at that point, I didn't think it could be my entire identity. 
And what really changed that for me was the hip hop community. And this happened both in my childhood, but really in high school and then in college, where I was just immersed in hip hop culture so much. And I realized that for people that are immersed in that culture, hip hop is life. Hip hop is everything. Hip hop is a primary identity. So if you're organizing in that space, you have to think about all sorts of things. You have to think about like what artists get, what their rights are. Um, do they have access to uh, basic healthcare and, and things like that? Can they unionize? Can they create guilds? You know, all of that stuff was coming up for me really early in like my early 20s. Um, I was also a DJ and I feel like a DJ is almost like a magician who can manipulate frequencies and bring people together at the same time and kind of change modes and senses. And if you go into like a lot of the Sufi trance music, uh, it's kind of similar to that, in my opinion. So all of that for me was like this idea of the catalyst, the the thing that brings things together, uh, that allows that formula to be there, but also recognizing what my strength is and what my weaknesses are. Or I wouldn't even say weaknesses, but really what are my strengths and what are the things that I'm not really good at doing and not necessarily focusing on those. And I know we've had that conversation before, but really digging into like, yo, this is the stuff that not only do I want to do, but I can do and I'm good at doing, and I would love to, to continue doing. Um, so I've played the role really of like a straight up producer, right? Putting on a festival or thinking about how like an artist residency goes. I've played the role of an artist or a director in the creative sense as well, uh, with theatrical performances as a DJ, as like a touring group of people. Um, but I've also done like a fair bit of that community engage engagement, the organizing on the ground, they're trying to get people together for like a greater cause that we all share in common. And all of those kind of balance out somehow. A lot of that's done in the Muslim space. It's not exclusive to it. Um, I think I'd like to build ecosystems and kind of consider myself a part of that and also embrace all the varying identities that come with it, knowing that our Muslimness, our Muslim identities are a part of much larger, more complicated, nuanced identities. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I'll, I know you sort of like briefly alluded to this, but you've, you've done so many different roles. You've worked with a lot of different artists and you've also been all around the world. What, what has that been like to get that global perspective? Where have you gone? You know, what were your, what were some of your experiences around the world? It's been amazing to do that. And I mean, you talk about roles. I've also had to do a fair bit of like the grant writing part of this. Right. And like the, the, that's probably the primary way I've raised funds. But it's kind of this idea that you need to you need to kind of like have resources to be able to do what you need to do. Um, and some of those resources have allowed me to travel the world and go as an artist or go as an organizer or something, live in other places. So I've been throughout uh, Asia and Europe, uh, North Africa, South, literally the country of South Africa as well, um, Brazil. Uh, the list can go on, right? I've lived in Malaysia. I've lived in Honolulu. Um, and of course we can argue that that's a sovereign entity as well that's currently occupied. Um, and the thing that I realized is that things are really similar in a lot of places, just as different as they are. And we can learn a lot from being in those different places, right? But the, the core of it and the core of the type of work that I do, because it's so community related, is that understanding, being immersed, and, and allowing, if, you, if you're really playing that role of the catalyst, allowing all the leadership, all the decision-making to really come from community is a really important aspect of that. But then also seeing like where those dots connect, right? Like sometimes we may have more, 
kind of more similarities between me and you living in different cities in the US and somebody living in Kuala Lumpur, somebody living in Birmingham, UK, and somebody living in Cape Town than people do within their own countries, right? Then we may with like somebody who's in the particular place with a particular mindset. So a lot of that is also that connection making and that understanding of like, how do we see the world and those worldviews, those values, those perspectives, that's been really interesting. It also makes me think about like, what does it mean to build community when community can feel so scattered, uh, when our definitions of home are changing, when we have the privilege or the opposite end of it, when we're forced to to move and migrate. Um, And that, I think that colors a lot of the work that I'm doing as well in that shaping of your first question, who are you (laughs) uh, or who are we? Yeah, and 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 I mean we're we're dots to be connected and we're dots that are connecting and you know sometimes the the image isn't clear until you really zoom out and you see oh wow all these dots I connected make this beautiful intricate shape or tapestry or network. And so speaking of connecting dots, what I find really uh particularly fascinating is that I've talked to artists in various disciplines, Muslim artists at varying levels of success and celebrity. And what I found spectacular is how many of these artists I've spoken to not only know you, but have had their career impacted by your work. Um, have you seen Have you seen The Black Godfather yet? Yeah, the documentary that, it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's still I is. believe you told me to watch it two years ago and I still haven't. And um, <laughs> I don't know what my resistance is. But inshallah, I will commit to watching it before the year of 2022 is done. <laughs> you, you heard it. You heard it here. We've got it. We've got it on tape. Um, so this this uh, this film, this documentary is essentially it's a story of Clarence Avon, who's an executive in the music industry. And it's being told by the people that he has worked with. Um, and, you know, what's. What's really what really blows my mind is that it's got everyone from Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama, you know, to Jamie Foxx and Snoop Dogg, like the, the spectrum of people that have been impacted uh, uh, by this man. And he's he's done a lot. He's played a lot of different roles in his life as well, from producing events, you know, to organizing concerts Uh, to, you know, later in his life, actually founding record labels uh, of his own. So, you know, if this isn't a a blueprint of of the work that you've been doing, I don't know what is. So what I find really fascinating um, about this is how uh, to the whole world, he's relatively unknown. But if you look within um, the the essentially the black music industry, he's known as a godfather of black music, and you'll be hard pressed to find someone who's at the top who hasn't heard of him or been impacted. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of why I really wanted you to to watch that because I feel like there's so many corollaries, especially when I talk to, you know, people like KM or Offendum, The Reminders, Amira Saki. There's the list goes on and on. Um, of people who you've worked with, I just want to—I just want to reject any Godfather type of label. But we 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 will continue on. I I would love to know, you know, in your in your time working with these various artists, um, that a lot of a lot of our audience may be familiar with. 
Are there any stories that stand out? Any anecdotes, maybe stories from the road or while on tour? Oh man, I mean, where are they not stories? Um, I will say I've never thought of myself as like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to frame this correctly. Um, my passion in working with artists is not like, I'm this person and I'm going to work with artists, right? I've always seen it as like, I'm working with other people like me. I'm working with other members of my community in these different ways. The same thing was happening when I was working with Hip Hop Congress or the Urban Art and Action Movement in Chicago. Um, working with these different communities of people, there was just this desire to see what things could be, whether that's for individuals or communities themselves. And 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 like you said before, connecting those dots. Um, and that's really, really important. The fact that like some transformation happens and something great happens is amazing. And that I can be part of that journey, even from like a distance is awesome. And, and seeing that come to life 10 years later, five years later, maybe 15 or 20 years later is amazing too. So that to me is all a blessing and a, like a, a product of this catalyst chemical reaction that we, that we see. Um, man, I, I'm trying to think about the stories because like I said, there are so many. I think one thing that really, really moved me a lot is we did this public art project with Words, Beats, and Life in Pakistan. And it was around like street art. And um, we did work in Lahore, Islamabad, and Karachi. And all of them were special in their own way. And they were all very different. But we did what we did in Lahore really was special to me. It really touched my heart. It was like the first uh, deeper project I had done in Lahore. And we had three artists from the U.S., all of different varying kind of like racial and ethnic backgrounds that um, that were working in what was known as a doctor's colony. And, and the doctor's colony isn't necessarily all doctors. It's people who work at the hospital in different ways or like a colony that has just been built up. But it was just a lot of young kids that were just outside all the time in like a, on a random kind of dusty street that would see these artists kind of creating this mural and kind of collaborate with them. And of course that included like playing cricket, trips to the to the to the local mosque, uh, a, a little celebration in a tent outside. Um, it included one of our artists actually falling off a makeshift bamboo scaffolding. And this artist was probably the oldest of us, so it was like not good that he fell off necessarily. Let's just say that the Kales called him called him grandfather, even though he's not that old. But um, <laughs> but something about that like kind of going over language, going over like all the other stuff, all the something happened there that I was just like, we are doing something that's beyond just like, oh, let's just use art as a universal language. And if we all to come together, it's great. It was like, literally we were going to people's homes. We were like eating and drinking with folks and we were just getting to know people um, in a different way. And the reason was, is because we were there every single day for X amount of time trying to create something, right? And I just always remember the reaction also of the artists being like, oh, we're in, Pakistan. And we just didn't know what to expect, right? And this is our experience right here. I also remember um, one of our Latine brothers, people not being convinced that he was anything but Pakistani, right? And that was a, <laughs> that was an interesting thing to post at a beer. Um, and, and they were just like, I don't understand how you're anything but what we are, you know, wow. which is which is an interesting metaphor for for something larger as well. So that's that's a project I always remember, and, and I can't believe that we accomplished because we just kind of went out on a on a limb 
and started creating this this public art project that was pretty cool that's beautiful and, and art is so much more than just the aesthetics of oh yeah this looks really pretty um in this moment it's so much yeah there's a, a phrase that um kashif pasa uh, uh, producer director told me Canadian uh, Canadian producer director he said media mediates and you know I'm not sure if he got this from somewhere else or if he, if he came up with the phrase but just the idea of media mediating experiences and conversations um, I think about you know the, the shows and the movies that I watch and I think it's very clear when something is there simply for the sake of entertainment that you watch it, it's fun at the time, it's a good distraction, maybe an escape into into a fantasy world. And that has incredible value uh, in and of itself. And then there's some things that you watch it and you just can't get it out of your head. And you want to talk to people about it. You want to talk to your family about it. You want to talk to your friends about it. You want to have watch parties and rewatch it and, and get all that content. You want to listen to podcasts about it. And there's so much uh, um, media that, uh, that mediates the sort of conversations that leads to ultimately change. I mean, art and change on, on every level is, is really inseparable. I think about, uh, for instance, the Black Panther Party. And how the art of the Black Panther Party, uh, the art style of the Black Panther Party, like as soon as you see that artwork, as soon as you see that unique, uh, uniquely drawn panther, you're immediately drawn to that movement. I can't think of a, of a movement that was not associated with some sort of art, art form. And you can even argue that... Um, Islam itself, from whether it's the early days of Islam, where it was spread through the Quran, in a landscape where poetic literature was the gold standard, to uh, you know, a few hundred years later, where Islam is now being spread through South Asia, uh, essentially through music and poetry and these art forms, right? So media mediates. Well, I mean, I would say like art is being the organic human expression, culture being the organic human expression are really just building blocks of how we are, how we communicate, how we live our lives. There is no such thing as humanity without that. It's a, you can't even separate the two. So um, for me, it's, it's, it's literally all around us. And it's that important. In, in something that you were saying, right now, my work as an artist and as a everything that I maybe label, my work as Asad Ali Jafri is really, really focused on process. And process is really, really important to me because it's the way in which we do things and, uh, and understanding that. Because a lot of times within the arts, uh, within the creative sector, just like in our entire economy, everything is product-based, productivity-based. Everything is based on a transaction. Everything is based on an inherent value and a price. And when that happens, we're only concerned with that end result. But what happens to, if you're thinking about the catalyst again and that role, what is that process that gets us there? And what do we learn from that? Because that's where the relationships are built. That's where the learning happens. That's where we connect, right? And that to me is where the magic happens. And I'm more interested in the magic making than I am in the end result. I'm less interested in the shiny object than I am in like the story of it, you know? I'm less interested in that owning of something than I am in like the person or the people who put all their time into that and and the, and the connections and the stories that were behind it. That's more interesting to me in a way. And if we can kind of bring that to the front, forefront, 
I think there's something liberating in that. There's something that has like a, a freedom movement built into that. And there's something that's kind of inherently anti-power, privilege, et cetera, et cetera, in the process. So, so my focus goes towards that more now. And I think that's always been there. I just never knew how to articulate it because unfortunately I'm born into a world that loves to talk about all of the end results rather than mm -hmm. the things that go mm -hmm. into it, right? Where's the degree? Where's the, how much do you get paid for this? Um, can I make this an NFT so I get X, Y, and Z, right? It's always <laughs> the end result. It's never, what do I need to do to get there? Right, and, and as a result, art has been completely commodified to where, um, you know, my, my experience with grants has been, you know, this year has been really, has really showed that, um, you know, we're applying for grants for a project called Khamsa, which incorporates wellness and community, uh, that incorporates, um, really, um, uplifting the voices of marginalized communities, uh, to talk about grief in a creative way. And, the wellness folks don't want to give a grant because it's too artistic. The arts foundations don't want to give a grant because it, it gets into wellness and community organizing and the organizers don't want to do it because it's in a gallery space. And so everything has been commodified and compartmentalized. Yes. And that's intentional because I think if you can label and categorize things, you can control them. And if you can control mm -hmm. things, you can decide who gets what. And this there's an unhealthy level of competition in the quote unquote nonprofit space and the art space that is built on a notion that the majority, 90% or so, have to fail so that a few can get more. That model in itself is something that I think we, whoever the we is, need to completely break down, abolish, burn down, and create a new system. Because until that model is there, we can talk all the equity and equality we want to talk about, all the justice, but it won't really be there. Because we are made to have a scarcity mindset that says, I need to get mine. And if I, in order for me to get mine, that means somebody else, in fact, numerous people are not going to get theirs. I think if we all came together, then some of these labels, these categories, even I, I've been struggling with this with the Muslim category as well. I think the reason that we get so much either hate or tough love from, from folks that feel that they're more progressive is because it's very hard to categorize Muslim in the same way you would a race and ethnicity and orientation, all those other things, because it has so many complexities to it. Um, and if you can't categorize it, it's harder to control. It's harder to decide what this thing gets. How many of your precious philanthropic dollars can go to this thing? How much of your sponsorship or marketing money can go to this thing? Because, oh, we've already done this with the Muslims. But wait, this is actually more complex than we think. We can't just categorize them as this or that. And so I think this idea of like the categorizing even this project into different things is not really helpful. And we find ourselves having to do it in order to explain things that are unnatural to us, whether that's as human beings or members of a certain community. And and we've seen we've seen Islam and Muslims categorized in very different ways in the media or you know over the last however many years. Um, I think for the sake of the con this conversation, we can think about the last twenty years, like two thousand and two till today. How do you feel the media landscape has changed for Muslims? We talk about categorization and depiction of Muslims uh, in the arts. So really focusing essentially on TV and film. So thinking about the screen, how has the media landscape changed for Muslims when we talk about representation or even beyond representation? Outside of uh, just quantifying it, which I'm sure there are numbers and people that we're associated with can give us those numbers. Um, 
Traditionally, of course, since even before 2002, it's been pretty horrible, right? It's been uh, particular roles and we have the data for this, in fact, and we have literal analysis of, of what's been happening. But I can tell you from my own perspective, having been involved tangentially in some of the efforts that were made to change that intentionally in media, especially in TV and film, is that I personally think things have changed for the better. And the reason I say that is that because of all the different efforts that I won't name right now, um, we are starting to see more of that ecosystem being built, like we said, right? More, um, not only more Muslim representation, because I think representation is really the lowest of the low bar, but mm -hmm. we're seeing Muslims that are writing, producing, directing, starring. We're seeing above the line and below the line. Uh, so Muslim folks kind of owning their own, not only stories and narratives, but the way those things are told, uh, who's working on them, what the, an overused word these days, what the intersectionality between different communities is. I'm definitely seeing a lot more of that in 2022 and beyond than we were seeing in 2002. And I'll say that's because of concentrated efforts. That's not just because time has gone on or we're more integrated, whatever that means, or any of that. It's because people are really fighting the oppressive systems, the hate systems. Um, I also think it's going on because we are standing with communities that we intersect with that, have all, that are also doing this, right? So it's not just us that are doing it, but all the communities in the US that fall under categories that are not white heterosexual men have to do this in some way, shape or form. And, and we have the privilege slightly as Muslims um, that a lot of our own folks had to go through this. Um, a lot of other folks had to go through this as well. And so there is something that we're standing on top of as well as a foundation that helps. But I would say in the last 20 years, we are seeing a lot more folks calling out things. Uh, I think we don't have to talk about things like Rami, Miss Marvel, you know, uh, the list can continue on that are kind of, I think, really forcefully um, breaking down doors and barriers and questioning things, both within the content of their own uh, work, but also in the way things happen. And I say this just from knowing some of those great people that are making that change happen um, from a production, writing, directing, and actually kind of content creation perspective. That And that leads directly into the next question. But I do want to put a pin on one thing that you said about representation being the lowest bar. And then you talked a little bit about ownership as well. And so definitely want to come back to that. Um, but before we do that, let's transition now. We've been talking about the past into the present. How would you describe this moment that we are living in as, uh, uh, as it pertains to, to media, to TV, to movies? And then within that context, what are two or three of your favorite um, TV shows or films that have come out recently um, in, within the, the, the Muslim zeitgeist and why? Are you, trying to tell, are you trying to get me to say that we're in a, a cultural zeitgeist moment? Was that a I, <laughs> I, is that a leading question? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it's funny because I do feel like we're in a moment, but then again, I remember feeling this before, but I think before I felt it from a, a music and performance perspective, and now I am feeling it from like a TV, film, uh, et cetera perspective. I will say that although some of my work intersects with that, my strength is more in the arts from a community perspective. And what I mean by that is like a more grassroots thing. I do think that it's important for us to be represented, obviously in media and pop culture, 
that's not necessarily not only my not my expertise, even though I may dabble in it, but also not necessarily my area of interest. I think people should be working on it, but I feel like I need to be the person working on the collectives, the uh, the younger folks, the folks that are just going to make it and like you know um, not necessarily need the fame or the fortune that comes with it, because we have to understand that these things are are complexes that are rooted in other issues as well, right? So personally, I'm not trying to change Hollywood. Personally, I'm not trying to change all of those things. But as a consumer of certain things and a person working in culture, I am I am both observing and working through it in some way. So I just want to put that out there in general. Um, our, I think we're in a moment for sure. I, I just, I, we, we have to be, because I think there's some amazing things coming out right now that are touching on the complex, nuanced Muslim identities, understandings, worlds that exist. I hope that it's just the beginning. And I will throw into this all of the great like literature that's being written as well, because I think that's part of this. I don't think we can discount that, especially if we're talking about things like Miss Marvel, which is an obvious one. But I'm also excited about Bassam Tariq um, directing Blade, for example. So there's something going on in this Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. Um, but if you talk about all of that, I think that we are in a moment. I'm not going to say it's the first time. I'm not going to say it's better than before. I just think we're at a moment that's significant. And um, my question is, where does this moment lead in the next 50 years? And, and what does this mark for us? And what are the dreams we're dreaming right now that our children's children will look back and live? And that's what I'm super interested in with what's going out right now. If we're talking about TV and film, I think we're making our own kind of myths and building our own worlds that I'm really excited about that we can then kind of borrow from. As somebody who's really been into science fiction and fantasy since a kid, I look back at a lot of super white things that I used to read and be interested and intrigued by and realize that there was a parallel in my spiritual and supernatural world to that maybe, but it wasn't the parallel to like the stuff that I was reading and consuming. They were separate and I could see a connection. Now I feel like we can make the connection to our own stories that we want to tell, whether those are made up right now or they come from some historical space. Um, and that gets me really interested into the new work that's coming out. That's um, it's really fascinating because I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is around Disney specifically. And, um, you know, this this might be my own personal bias as well, because I've been really getting more and more into the Marvel Universe. Um, and, you know, you could argue that superheroes are also having a moment because we're trying to sort of like break out of let's just do another Spider-Man series, another Spider-Man, and now actually connecting it into the multiverse. Uh, but specifically within that, Miss um, Marvel and Moon Knight being perhaps the more obvious examples. Uh, there's also Disney Launchpad, uh, which had a series of shorts, and one of those shorts was called American Eid which I thought was really spectacular. It was really about um, being Muslim in America and, and really understanding and how that understanding ultimately came through, an, through a cultural exchange, not, a, not an exchange of rhetoric, not an exchange of ideas or a scholarly debate, but a cultural exchange, right? Um, 
And then even beyond the like blatantly explicitly Muslim, you have, for example, uh, Adil and Bilal, who who did the the um, the last Bad Boys movie, uh, and through that, you know, came into Marvel and have been you know directing Moon Knight and and bits of Miss Marvel, and, and then and beyond that as well, you know, because you mentioned, um, for example, Blade that's coming out with a lead Muslim actor and a Muslim director, but Blade is not an explicitly it's not a Muslim story. It's just a story. No, and I, and I think this, there's this, to me, there is a problem with if we are challenging people's notion of what Muslim means and we're saying that it's not a particular this, that there's so many different complexities to it. I also think that we can't just be looking for stuff that's just Muslim as if we live in a vacuum or a silo. So to me, as somebody who's working in this space, it's just as important for me to think about uh, if we're talking about like more of like the superhero fantasy stuff, Lovecraft Country, uh, Watchmen, things like this that are really important, uh, Neptune Frost from Saul Williams, all of these things are touching on things that are important to us because we live in these fluid ecosystems. We're not the ones who are creating these nation state borders and barriers, these other categories, right? Our Muslim identity is really important to us, but that's part of so many, a multitude of other identities as well. So I think we have to also look at the landscape in that way. If we start siloing it out, I'm, I'm kind of scared of that. And that's why I think the representation thing is difficult because, um, yeah, because it's just a starting place and we do need to own things and we need to do things that are outside of like the mainstream media aspect of things also because, and I learned this through the music part of it is everything starts becoming into these larger conglomerates, right? There's an oligarchy of like who rules music, movie, film, TV, et cetera, right? So your mention of Disney is important because everything is starting to own each other. And this is a thing that's continued to happen for a while now. And that says something about the work that we do as well. So for me, we need all of the, the counter stuff as well. Not like some of these cheesy, whatever, Islamic TV stations and all that. I'm not going to name anything. But those, those to me, like, they don't mean anything because they just feel like really, they're not, they're not meeting the bar. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that, and this is why it's important that it's not just Muslim. I'm talking about like just really good content from folks that can be a bit more independent from the powers that be, whoever you know, whoever these companies and their subsidiaries may be at the moment. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be working there. They should, for sure. But my own particular interest is in creating that parallel as well. I, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned Love, Lovecraft Country because, you know, we can draw a parallel to uh, Black cinema, uh, to, 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 to Black films that are not only have the representation, but have the ownership by black folks that are being directed and, and acted by black folks. And, um, and what's really fascinating about Lovecraft country. And, uh, you know, you could argue also that we are sort of having a moment within a new genre of like black horror. And what I love about uh, consuming horror just as a genre is that you can learn so much about a person's perspective by learning what terrifies them, by learning what their biggest fears are. And so, you know, within this context, if you look at some of the more recent films, uh, especially the work that Jordan Peele is doing, you know, Get Out, Us, I still have to watch Nope, I haven't seen that yet. Um, Antebellum was a fantastic horror film. Uh, that wasn't, I don't think that was Jordan Peele. Uh, that might've been someone else. That was a fantastic film. Um, and, and so, you know, like, what do you learn from these things about the black American experience? 
And I really, I would love to know, you know, what are people that are not Muslim that maybe don't have a lot of Muslim people in their lives? What are they learning about, uh, about Islam and about Muslims, about the community? And I think this is why a lot of people get really upset by the content that's out there because they say, well, that's not all Muslims uh, experiences. That's not my Muslim experience. Um, and, you know, instead of going out and creating their own media, they just sit there and criticize, but that's, that's a whole other, um, there, you know, there, there's so many, there's so many complications to this, right? So for example, can we, can we say that we're connected to Lovecraft country um, in the same way people may be connected to something that's made by somebody who has to be, happens to be Egyptian American, but not Muslim or doesn't identify in that way, right? Like, can we can we claim both of those? Um, the other thing is like, what if people are acting and directing in something, but there's no explicit Muslim thing in it, like you said, um, or what about when there's like a Muslim character in something? And that's interestingly done. So I'd love for people to talk a little bit about American Gods, for example, and like the Jinn character in that. There's others, and I should have probably come with a list that I've just been thinking about in this space. And like, what is what what represents stuff that is acceptable? And the truth is, there is no there's nothing that's acceptable because then we're claiming that Muslims are a monolith, and everybody's going to agree on something. So I think the problem with representation is that if it claims just that, if the only way it works is if there's a majority, there's tons of people right in it. And I think it is important, but then you can also fall into this idea of exceptionalism, of tokenizing, um, of thinking that there's these individuals that are going to appeal to an entire diverse community, right? And I think I think we need to be careful of not falling into that because a lot of criticism we may see with something that's so explicitly Muslim like Rami and Miss Marvel, and those are just easy examples to use, is that then that criticism comes from this isn't really what this, right? But is, an, is a Muslim artist however they choose to identify their Muslimness, able to create something that they just want to create, even if it's completely fictitious, even if it's not their experience, right? Are they allowed to do that? And in which way? Because guess what? White men, at least, especially straight white men, are able to do that in any way they want, even about people that they know nothing about. And I'm not trying to answer that question. I'm just saying that there's so many layers to this. And um, I don't want to pretend that I understand the music industry or the film industry or the TV industry, nor as a creative person, am I interested in those industries that again are based on a lot of problematic capitalism, a lot of problematic things in this history, in the history of this country. I'm interested in creating art, understanding the process, allowing people to imagine, connecting folks, having resources to do that. And that to me is not necessarily different. I mean, it is different. It's not necessarily opposing the thing, but it is part of this larger ecosystem. And I feel like right now, as Muslims, a lot of us get obsessed with representation in media. And I think we can only put so much into that. Um, and I'll leave it at that. And also, man, I'll be real with you, right? I am a hip hop loving um, Shia Muslim that just like likes to question things through the arts. I'm not looking for stuff that millions of people love. I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just being honest, right? Like <laughs> I have my small amount of folks that like certain things and there's something I like about that. And I'm cool with that, right? Like my yeah. approach is not like the millions of eyes. My approach is like, yo, what's happening on Devon? And like, why can't we all get together, right? A little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, like you, you touch upon the commercialization of it as well. Like when you're thinking about what shows and what movies actually get, produced it, it it definitely pertains to like how many people are going to consume this is this is this reaching a wider audience um so that's that's definitely a really uh a really important point to note is 
you know, is the, is is looking at art as a product of, is this product commercially viable? Now, speaking of commercial products, our podcast would absolutely not be possible without the support of our sponsors. Our sponsor for today's episode is Crave Subs, a spot in Berkeley, California that lives up to its name because I get to craving it a lot. Not your average sandwich shop, Crave Subs provides you halal, vegetarian, and vegan options, all named after nostalgic cartoon characters. My personal favorite has got to be the Patrick Star Sandwich, which has fried chicken, pepper jack cheese, topped with ranch, Korean barbecue sauce, and the classic Crave Sauce. And if you think that's mouth-watering, Wait till you try out their loaded curly fries. With a new spacious location in Berkeley, be sure to bring out your whole family and enjoy the day with some of the best halal sandwiches the Bay Area has to offer. And now, back to the conversation. You may have something that's like, that's going to make all Muslims happy, like super happy because it it doesn't get into too much of the differences between the kinds of Muslims. But is it interesting? Is it is it commercially viable? Are people are mil- if millions of people are not going to consume this, the studios are not going to greenlight it. So they're they're obviously going to go for stories. A lot of people that I've talked to that are Muslim or not Muslim, uh, they may happen to be black or whatever, whatever category they fit in this thing of uh, Hollywood that oh, that have been asked, why don't you have the lead person be a white woman? Why don't you? What what are the mainstream audiences going to think? You should do this. Like the amount of stories that we have of that is is ridiculous. But the problem is we also want to exist in that in that world because we think that's the only way. I'm not discounting anybody who wants to do that. They should. A lot of my work connects to that. I'm part of things that are working that. That's fine. But there's got to be folks that are allowing us to build our own infrastructures and to feed the ecosystem that exists. And I think we have an obsession, just like all Americans, unfortunately, and maybe the majority of the world, with celebrity, with with the fame and fortune part, with if it's not happening on the big scale, we don't want it. And I, I think that's really sad because people don't invest in other things. What ends up happening though is they'll invest in product uh, in uh, projects that are more charity di- driven, social services, um, even social justice projects. But when it comes to the arts, we buy into this thing that the arts are for like this big kind of shebang, entertainment, even even like the word media, right? It's like. For me, if, if art is part of our soul, if art is part of like our understanding of the human experience, that needs to be happening on the ground as well. And I would love to see as much support as hap- that's coming into this idea of big representation happen on the ground as well within the arts, within like culture that, do- that doesn't look at it as just a means to an end. That says that if, if, if the arts and culture are thriving in a community, naturally things will be happening for that community that don't require us to have like this dog and pony show for whoever else. And if, and in that way, I think a lot of our conversations around media are reactionary and they're about like, oh, look at us. We are the victims. So we need to reject this. We need to reject, uh, not that we don't reject it, but we need to counter Islamophobia by doing this. And that part of it is fine, but it, it comes from this scarcity deficit mentality that doesn't allow us to necessarily build the infrastructure that we also need as communities and to do the real internal work that we need to be doing as well. And so I guess all I'm saying is that both need to happen in parallel. Right. It's it's interesting because you mentioned the internal work and 
now that I think about it in the context of our conversation, if you look at representation, like what is representation on the big screen actually mean? And the way I'm seeing it now is, is what it means is validation. It means that if I get to see, you know, me as a, as a Desi Muslim guy, if I see another Desi Muslim guy associated with a name like Disney, a huge name, a name that I grew up with, that means that I'm worthy. If I see this validation through representation, it, it proves my own worthiness. But then that begs the question is, why did I feel unworthy to begin with? And that, that's a much bigger philosophical and spiritual question that I would love to, to get into because I agree with that. But I do think it's important to have representation. So I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that that being the goal is what I question, right? The goal for me is not representation. I don't do my work every day and put in countless hours into things because I'm like, man, Muslims need to be represented on this. <laughs> Muslim voices need to be part of things. We need to have ownership, all of that, right? But that's not the that's not the end goal for me is just that. That's just like a starting point, right? That's just like the bare minimum that somebody could give. It's like when you're talking about things, why are Muslims missing? And you could say that about any community, right? But um, but it gets into these like uh, these issues like we're talking about as well. I'll leave it there. Yeah. No, I mean, this, this is a perfect um, segue into the conversation about representation. But before we do that, I want to make a quick pit stop. I know that, you know, in, in Miss Marvel, there was a scene in one of the episodes where it's revealed that the main character is essentially a jinn. And this sparked a really interesting conversation online that I was following about, is this too far? Like, are we, if we start bringing in jinn and angels, you know, does this open the door to like having, for example, uh, Prophet Dawood being depicted with this amazing video effects of him toppling over, you know, Goliath, right? Or um, uh, along the lines of like bringing Islamic stories to the big screen in this way, and what the, what the reaction would be. I think it's really fascinating that um, essentially Christian uh, uh, Christian stories. I've been on the big screen for a long time, um, where they were talking about like. Uh, 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 biblical stories told from that Christian lens on the big screen, um, such as the Ten Commandments, uh, the Prince of Prince of Egypt, you know, with the splitting of the sea. Uh, there's so many examples of that. To to take it back into the into the Marvel universe, you have uh, Norse gods, right? You have various different gods from de- various different mythologies, and they're represented. Now, what if you know? What if we start bringing Muslim uh, theology, Muslim ideas into this, how far is too far? I know a lot of people have huge uproar. This is just a little little tidbit, very interesting um, fact. If you go online and look up Imam Ali in the Valley of Death, there is a Turkish comic book cover of Imam Ali riding a horse with Zulfikar in his hand, and he is uh, essentially is defeating dinosaurs. Is going after dinosaurs, and this is an older, you know, Turkish comic, right? But if we see something from from Disney like that now, the world would be in, in an uproar. Um, so I so said, side note, maybe, maybe maybe off the record, but I heard a story about Imam Ali killing a dragon, and like I'm saying, I heard, so I may be wrong. Um, I heard a story about Imam Ali killing a dragon, I believe, in Bamiyan Valley, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in Afghanistan. So. Um, I love that story. Yeah. Why? Because that is part of the same kind of stuff, supernatural stuff that I grow up with. 
to me, when it comes to like culture and media and all that, the the veracity of that, the truth in that is less important than the creative process again, right? Mm. I'm not somebody who's gonna be like, oh, somebody should do this or shouldn't do this. I think that's that is honestly the thing that puts me at ends with most folks that want to create like religious boxes for other people, because I think that that's really problematic when it comes to culture, because right. it's it, because then where do we draw the lines on who's controlling what? But to your point, we don't have to look at the Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur or anything else in order to see Christian stuff. Judeo-Christian values and Christian stories are in most of the things that we're watching. They're just right. done as allegory. They're done as symbolism. And nobody questions it because we really, as Americans, are, that's part of the culture, right? So the question is, does it come, if you're going to do it from a Muslim perspective, what way does it come in? Have there been Muslim kind of things around these things before? Yes, they have. I mean, you can watch Disney's Aladdin to see representation <laughs> of a jinn at the end of the day, right? And and I think what the, the argument that I heard, which I don't think is necessarily wrong, was that why do we did they have to do? Because of course, in Miss Marvel, the comic is from the Inhumans, mm-hmm. but the the question became why did they have to do jinns? Because that's such a orientalizing trope right. that folks would like love about the magical, mystical Muslims, right? It's like we love this part of them because it's so different and unique and exotic. But here's the thing. The difference is what happens when it's all Muslims creating that? Is that taking back ownership of something that does exist? And somebody that I respect who's a scholar was saying a lot of times the way, let's get off like the the religious understanding of it and just the, the cultural understanding. A lot of people in South Asia may look at different things in different ways from the supernatural. They may have different names for them or they might call things like Jinn, Booth, you know, all these different names for things that exist in the supernatural. Right. So what some people may call a jinn, other people may call something else, like an inhuman or, or something else, right? So is is what Miss Marvel doing a cultural contextualization of what it is? And who makes that decision, right? And for me, there isn't a right or wrong to that, right? It's a very hard question to answer, like, should it be this or should it not be that? Personally, I was interested in their bringing in of Noor and that they right. come from Noor because that's a concept that, not necessarily all Muslims are immediately familiar with, and especially from either a Sufi or a Shia perspective, that Noor has a special significance. What it indicated to me was somebody who knows something about me and people that I may be a part of is doing something with this show in a way that comes from I have inside knowledge. It's an indication. And that's interesting to me. But the question is like, who gets to decide what a correct representation is right. when it's coming from your own quote unquote community, which happens to be a large and massive community. So, so that's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, that's not something that we have to agree on, uh, meaning people in general. And I think the beauty in it in, in art is that it, it raises questions. It makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. It makes people feel like, Hey, what's up with this? And that is the exact reason why art more than anything, people want to control. Because art can really have that transformative experience in a way that can't be controlled in the same way other things can. Mm, that's that's really that's really fascinating. Art also as a means of control, especially when the content that most people are watching are really essentially controlled by a few uh, executives, studio executives that ultimately get the final call on. Yeah, are we going to put this story forward? Or are we are we going to shelve the story? Um, and. So, so looking at the scene right now with where we are in this moment, would you say we have good representation as Muslims? It's hard for me to say that, to be honest, because, yeah, it's, it's hard. I, I don't think I could say yes. No, I'll say no. 
I, I don't think that we have representation of the diversity of what it means to be Muslim. Um, and, and I would leave it at that. I will say, I think one of the issues is something that somebody taught me a long time ago, and that's distribution. And the, re- the way they taught it to me was, I used to work for a lot of record labels back in the day. And um, the issue for independent was that it's not hard to create a record label. It's hard to get distribution. And that was even talking about physical stuff back then. Mm-hmm. I think that distribution thing still exists now. The reason that you need these larger companies is not so that they can help you create the content necessarily, right? It's so that they can get it in front of people so that other people can see it and that you don't have to be doing it um, yourself. That still exists now, even within our social media channels with algorithms and all that. I think figuring that out would be an interesting part. It's like, if we know that we have people in our communities that can create amazing content, whatever that may be, how do we make sure that that then is shared with the people that may want to see that? That Figuring out that formula would be cool and something that I would love to know more about rather than let's go to the people who already have control of that exclusively. We should do that as well. But what about those channels of distribution and what does that mean and how does that get to people? It's, it's, it's really interesting because I see social media as one of those possibly democratizing tools that uh, gives everyone an even sort of podium to, to create and express in. But then over the years, you've seen uh, the exact same patterns. And now we have social media celebrities and then this, and then the social media celebrities, the influencers end up being cast in shows and movies so that they're, well, because, because that's not a surprise because the system is the same, right? Who owns all the social media channels that we're on one company, you know what I mean? What happens when a, when a company becomes bigger or becomes better and, uh, and, and is influencing people, that same company wants to buy it. So we're still talking about a few people that own the the distribution channels and that now are sourcing content from us, but still deciding who gets to see what. Mm-hmm. So it, it's to me, it's the same exact issue and where they were coming up against. And I think because those things are harder to think about because it's not as exciting, it's uh, as, as being on the big screen, less people are like thinking, well, what can we do about these things? Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like too much organizing perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's something that I think that we can't ignore. There's a lot that also goes to how much can an artist really do? <clears throat> and how do you set up an artist for success, right? Like you've worked a lot with artists uh, over the last 20 years as an artist yourself. Also, you know that if you're doing the art, you're not, that's time that you're not spending on the marketing, on the distribution, like you said on the business side of things, on making it commercially viable, on reaching the eyeballs that you're trying to reach. But when it comes to um, these sort of larger studios, uh, and I keep going back to Disney as an example, you don't have to do any of that. If your job is just to be the creator, you just focus on, on that and you don't have to worry about any of the rest of it. And that really increases your bandwidth to be creative. Sure, but like how, what do you have to do to get there, right? How many people can actually get there? Um, and, and how long can that last, right? And what does that do for the ecosystem that you're coming from? I don't know the answers to that, but what I would rather do is create experimental models, figure out what works for us on the ground, right? Think about that ecosystem and how we can get funding and how artists, because even at Disney, you're looking at your work as transactional, right? You're looking at it as a gig in a sense. And you're thinking that in order for my work to be valued, it the work needs to be valued. Not me as a person, not my ideas and my creativity. I'm not getting invested in. It's my idea that then gets purchased, right? 
my writing, my concept, my whatever. And then that gets sold for much more. The, 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 the money mostly goes to these corporations and I get some part of it, right? Do I have ownership of it? What does that mean? Especially if I'm at Disney, all those things come in. I, rather than racking my brain, trying to figure out how to work within that, I'd rather rack my brain with some folks thinking about, because I used to think, you know, I used to be part of the thing that says artists should always get paid for their work. Artists should always get paid for their work. And I started thinking, actually, we need a system where artists are able to access resources on a regular basis so that they can create work rather than they're kind of like starving artists until they break through something. That model is not a good model. That model does not work well because then everything you do is based on like the product that you create. And so maybe Disney has a lab, maybe there's fellowships, maybe there's other things. I think we should build our own. And I think we should have things that allow people to be their most creative, productive selves in the ways, not even productive, because that's really, really related to capital again, is how do we create this new system and model that may not even exist in our lifetimes or for another hundred years, but if we're not dreaming it now, then it probably never will. Right. And we and and this thing that is created needs to be able to include artists that are on the fringes. And from what I know, artists are on the fringes. Uh, exactly. Artists exist in the liminal spaces. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you bring up the starving artists who may be producing great work. And there's an argument of, you know, the most amazing work comes from pain. Does this mean that we leave the artist suffering so that, they, that we can have better uh, uh, art to access? There's also the exact opposite of the starving artist model, which I've been seeing a lot um, through through the artists that I work with, which is you have artists that have full-blown careers. You have artists that are, uh, that are in middle management in corporate America. And every now and then on the weekends or on the side, whenever there's time, they're going to you know, put their creative pursuits, but they are, you know, it's, it's kind of like the exact opposite issue of the starving artists where they are spending so much time and so much of their energy. Um, and I don't think we talk about, uh, energy enough as a resource, but when, when you give all of that resource to your job, how much is left? And I really like, I really think a lot about how much art has not been created because that artist happened to be in sitting in a cubicle 40 hours a week. No, totally. But also, I think this makes me think about the fact that when we're talking about um, Muslims and representation, and we could say media, but like what we're not, we then talk, start talking about this one channel, right? Or this one kind of pipeline. We're not talking about the arts and culture, I'll call it sector for now, for lack of a better term, that includes tons of Muslims as well, right? Like, what about the, the artists that are trying to be in some of the museum spaces? What about theater makers? What about all these folks that are already doing what they do and are part of this and part of these ecosystems that intersect with each other, that are not separate from this, that are having the same conversations? We don't get to talk about them because we're really talking about entertainment systems that exist, uh, complexes and industrial uh, ways of doing things. And we're not talking about all of those other things as well. And I've, I've rarely been a part of a conversation that really encompasses these different disciplines from an artistic perspective that are people working in the field, like really working in the field. And I think there's something missing there. And I feel like I feel like part of it is that Muslims that are working in the arts truly are not valued, period. Not because of any other thing, but because it's maybe not be flashy. It may not be like on the big screen. I don't know what it is. And then I think the role of people not, I think the type of work that I do is really like hard, lots of hours. And a lot of times you don't get a lot for it, to be honest. It's very like people just feel like, oh yeah, 
we need this person to do this type of thing. And those kinds of roles are not valued. Mm-hmm. And they're not valued because we're looking for somebody on the big screen. We're looking for somebody, oh, Disney this and that. And it's just like, a lot of times it just gets to the point where you're like, we're not going to build it because it seems like we don't want it, mm-hmm. you know? And then there, I do think there's this like proximity to whiteness thing going on sometimes um, for a lot of folks. Yeah, I, I, I guess that my heart is more in like building the movement that all folks can benefit from at the end of the day and being a cog, being one person in that bigger you know right the, the ecosystem that we're hoping to build and i, I i'm glad that you mentioned um uh theater as well we started uh season two of this podcast by talking to uh wujahat ali about domestic crusaders um which was on stage and we talked with zarka and rizwan and kamran and we've gone through tv media a lot of canadian representation on this season so you know i love that you bring that up and that that really like helps wrap up this season um, in, in, a, in a very beautiful way because we've been able to see the work that has been done and we're able to see the moment that we are in right now. And I'm really glad that, uh, that you shed some light on the fact that, you know, we have some representation, we don't have full representation. And even then representation itself is not, uh, is not a good goal. So what, what is the goal? What is the manzil? I'll say it's not the ultimate goal. It shouldn't be the ultimate goal is what I'm saying. Um, what is the what is the goal? The goal is to have a thriving arts and culture community that is representative of the people itself. That is not just kind of led by predominantly white institutions. That is not just seen as a, a modes of moving around capital. Um, that is the goal for me is that artists can create, reflect their lives um, and the human experience in a way that benefits all of us. Uh, I think that can be a beautiful thing that connects to issues that we're having with food and farming and agriculture. It can connect to issues of social justice. They're not actually different. They're all like layered in the same. And I think that's that's the goal for me is how can we build that? And the, the way that I'll tell you that we can build it one way is that folks that have resources that there are a lot of probably listening right now that are, that are sitting on resources instead of A, either thinking, oh, we need to come up with a new idea and build something brand new. Share those resources. Bring those resources to those people that need them. Um, And two, it's trusting the people that are doing the work and allowing them to do that work and giving them the space to do that work. There's a lot of us working in this. We need foundations. We need organizations to trust that the folks that they keep relying on, if they came together, could be experimenting, could be building, could be learning, could be failing, but at least learning. And I think more resources need to be put into that. We can't really name many Muslim-led cultural organizations that even have like a million dollar budget in the US. And that's just sad for all the money that's been poured into the Muslim arts and culture space that we can't name organizations like that. That's primary focus is on arts and culture. And that's something that needs to change. And I'm, I'm less into like the institution building part now because I feel like we need to focus on individuals too many of our Muslim nonprofits that everybody champions have all the nonprofit industrial complex issues, um, and people still keep championing them and giving them money, unfortunately. And I think we need to we need to come up with the the new systems. And at this point, I feel like me as a person just needs to start calling out what's going on, calling out folks, because we all suffer as as humans with egos with the pat on the back mentality that I think uh, 
falls into the representation thing way too easily. Right. It, so really, you know, you didn't answer the question, what is our destination with? I want to see these kinds of shows. I want to see this identity represented. You answer the question with the goal is to create a community and the goal is to essentially you're calling for a revolution um, and to dip into Urdu, specifically in Inqilab, um, where, you know, and I love this, I love this word itself, Inqilab, because there's this, um, uh, there's a dish called Makluba Makluba, which is a, an upside down dish. It's a dish that you flip and, uh, and even revolution, something that is revolving. But in Urdu, when you talk about Inqilab, it's like literally taking things as they are and flipping them, turning them on their head. Well, you, you talked about the Black Panthers and we can talk about the Black Arts Movement. I think those were movements. Those were revolutionary movements at a time and place. Um, I think that is important. I think that is a part of this work. I don't know if I label it that way myself because I think to call yourself a revolutionary is something as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I do think that we need a drastic change, turnover, um, taking down of existing systems to create new systems. So I'm definitely with that. I'm all, I'm all about the inkalabs and the bad. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, like I love seeing some of the shows, like I am a geek for all of that stuff. Like I'm super excited that Neil Gaiman's Sandman is out and I need to get all into that. And I can talk to you about all the different Muslim characters I've seen on all those things, but that to me needs this first, this foundation of things first, those things will always happen. We're always going to have that. And the, the thing that we're complaining about oftentimes is that we're not represented in this larger thing. We're also profiled. We're also villainized. Those are real issues, and we do need to tackle those. My interest is not necessarily in just that. My interest is in building the building something. Let's just put it that way. Uh, for all of us and for the conversations we have, and, and I'll be honest, I feel like sometimes I'm not part of the other conversations, and I think there's a reason for that, and that and that's okay. I'd rather be knowing about the artist that 10 years from now, mm -hmm. people are going to be like, whoa, that person was doing something dope. Not because like, oh, I knew about them first or anything like that, but I'm interested in that process again of that person going through that and doing something that people may not even be ready for. Right. Um, and we need to cultivate all of that before, I don't know, we just need to cultivate all of that regardless. I, I find that at the core of a lot of the themes and the things that you discuss, like if we really peel back and dig deep, you know, what is that validation that comes with representation? What is that feeling when you see your story represented on the screen? But even what is it, what is that feeling when, when an artist um, uh, is accepted and is given the resources to create? And it's beyond a feeling, really, the crux of all these things that you've mentioned is love. It, it, it definitely is. And because it's, that's the basis of community. But let me ask you this, right? Because you said the screen and you said media what would this conversation be like 150 years ago? Right. What would that mean? And I think, I, think, I think we need to be able to talk about that in order to talk about what this conversation would be like 150 years from now. I mean, that depends if our revolution is successful. <laughs> well, like I, only, I only say that because we're still looking like at these like channels of distribution and all this stuff when we were talking about this. And I think it's important to think about the fact that art and culture have always existed. We're talking about human history and people, and we're talking about issues that are probably never going to go away completely because human beings can be awful. Mm -hmm. And um, and how do we tackle this, right? And how have people tackled it? And in that way, I know we're not going to get to some utopian place, 
And this is why it's important to come back to that community aspect. It's like, what are we building in the face of um, all of the oppressive structures that exist? And because I know you're a fellow Hosseini and we just finished Muharram, um, what does that mean in all of this? Because we know mm. for a fact that we're always going to be in a consistent struggle. And we know that all of this is temporary, right? If we can get on a spiritual tip. So what does that mean for the work that we do? And what does that mean for the genera generational work that we're doing? Um, and I don't know if everybody wants to have that conversation, but I do. Yeah. And I mean, to, to quote uh, uh, Che, uh, che Guevara, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. Um, and so I, you know, you talk about the future, you talk about, you know, build, you know, we can't build a utopia, but hopefully we can build something that brings us closer and closer to this vision, ultimately of love and, and of acceptance and of community. Um, I, I wanted to close out with a question of what, what advice would you give to young Muslim artists, writers, filmmakers? But I'm going to ask in a, in a slightly different way. If you got a chance to talk to a cultural producer or catalyst from 50 years ago, what would you ask them? And if you got to speak to a cultural producer 50 years from now into the future, what would you ask them? I'll start with this because we were talking about media and such. Uh, I was watching a show called Paper Girls that's based off of a, also a graphic novel comic book. Um, and in it, they do some time traveling, which is always great. And they also meet their, um, they meet different versions of themselves. And uh, my wife, Manira asked me, she's like, what would, what if you met your younger self? And I was like, that'd be kind of cool or interesting. And I started thinking about like what that conversation would be. And I almost like felt like I would be annoyed by my younger self, which is, <laughs> which makes me think would my older self be annoyed with my current self. <laughs> um, if I met somebody from 50 years ago, I would want to know actually what their vision is for the future at that time. Um, because I would want to know like what their dreams were and what our reality is and see how much those kind of could be similar, different, et cetera. And if I went into the future, I would like to ask that person what they learned and what they've inherited because they're hopefully living our dreams. So I think, I, think, I, think, I think that kind of a learning would be amazing. But also, I think it's a blessing that we live in our time. And until we figure out how to break the space-time continuum, which some of us probably have already done, um, <laughs> there's a blessing in not knowing as well. That's a really interesting point, because no matter what future any of us imagines, the actual future will be something none of us can ever predict. Yep. There's so many different factors involved in there. Um, what so to to people that that are in a stage of their life a stage of their career now where they see themselves as possibly building that future whether it's filmmakers you know through the pillars fund um uh cohorts uh, uh that are being championed um or you know really through the hip-hop artists through through words beats and life fellowship you know, what, what advice do you give to people who have that hunger, that drive, that creativity, and want to create that world of the future? I would say, first and foremost, create a space, figure out a way to allow yourself to do that, unhinged, unhindered, 
by anything else, right? Don't think of the thing like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell my script to Disney eventually, or I'm going to be able to have my stuff over. I need these many Spotify or YouTube listeners, all that, right? I think my, my advice to them would be like, if you really want to figure this out, create a time, create a, a sacred time for yourself in whatever you need to do. And if I can help you, allow me to help you. And I know this comes from a place of privilege because it's like, you got to work, you got to pay bills, you got to do all these things. But if you can create that sacred time, that practice, that ritual that allows you to create, I think there's nothing better than that. And I trust all those people that you're talking about, the filmmakers in the, uh, in the Fellowship of Pillars, the fellows at Words Beats and Life, anyone else that has that, that spirit in them, uh, what we need to just give them is time and space and hopefully in the future, inshallah, resources to, to allow them to do that with nothing else, no direction. They probably don't even need training. They'll figure that out. If they need it, they'll seek it out. People have always done that, right? If they need a, an ustad of something, if they need a teacher, a teacher in like the, the hip hop art forms, if they need somebody who's going to teach them filmmaking, let them figure that out. I think that is important. Mentorship's important. But when we have ecosystems, that works. And I know that a lot of the folks that are the best at what they do that I know ended up figuring that out for themselves as to who they're going to learn from, right? We don't have to give it to people on like this silver platter, like we're going to build a system. And if we could just put you in this, you'll have everything you need. I think we need to give them time and space and access to resources and they will figure out the rest. We don't need to control it. Like everything is controlled in our, uh, in our current uh, world. So I, I would love to be able to do that for a lot of folks. And I can think of people by name right now where I'm like, man, if this person had the money to have an apartment because they don't have one right now, they have to live with other people and just had the, t and, and could live in a different place where they're closer to the work that they do, they would be doing what they want to do. Right. And it's our job to figure that out for them. I will say that um, one of my teachers and someone in Chicago uh, that is a spiritual teacher was bringing up this idea of like our economy, right. As Muslims as well. And what we do with that. And we love to give charity as Muslims. We give a ton of money, but a lot of that money is going to people that we don't know. There's going to people and causes that we're kind of removed from. And he was like, what if there's a family here that can't pay their rent or mortgage? What if there's a student that needs like student debt paid? And I would bring that into the arts and say that our community has tons of money. And we know a lot of people who are like the quote unquote starving artists. Why aren't we coming up with a fund or direct way to get money to folks? If there's an embarrassment or needs to be anonymous, we can start that fund tomorrow and probably come up with a ton of money and just be like, yo, if somebody needs it and, and somebody wants to have it, we can make this an easy process. We can start right now. And I think that that's my biggest kind of concern is like, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of things people want to do, but people are scared to just say, take this resource. It's just money. It's uh, it's really an imaginary thing. That's a symbol of our love time and energy and resource. Mm -hmm. And can we just put that love to someone directly so that they can do the things that they need to do instead of having mm -hmm. all these things in place. And I feel like for all the thinking that we're doing about building this, doing that, there are some solutions that I think would be easier. Um, that may sound radical, but we just need to implement. And if we did this today, plus if every single Muslim danced once publicly in their life, I think we'd be uh, in a much better position. <laughs> I Sorry, love, I had to I throw that. That, that little one in there as well. <laughs> No, I, I, I love that. That's phenomenal. I think that, um, you know, cultural exchange is how we can learn and get to know each other. And I also really believe that that is our imperative as Muslims, that in the Quran itself, you know, through God's own words, he says, I've created you as nations and tribes so you can get to know one another. And, you know, for me, getting to know someone is always boiled down to, you know, 
what what do they like to eat? What food gives them comfort? And what what scares them? And that's why I love um, food and and specifically horror as a genre because I, I feel like I can understand someone a lot more if I can understand these two things. Man, f- food is such an untapped uh, part of this equation because we talk about culture a lot. We talk about the arts and we look at food as something that's like safe, brings people together, which it, which it, it does. It's not safe necessarily. I wouldn't say there's a lot of uh, uh, political aspect to food, just like there is art. But one of the projects I'm working on is around food, art and social justice. And I think I think that's like an untapped thing that we haven't talked about is uh, those conversations themselves. And uh, I know this is the artistic foodies. So maybe in season three, there's a deeper deeper conversation around that as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you must be psychic. I mean, season two has been all about Muslims in the media. Season three, we're going to get a lot more into the food of it. Um, and so I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And I'm going to end with one quick question, maybe just a little bit of a, a, a gift to our listeners. You know, do you like to cook or do you prefer eating up? Oh, I love to cook, but I just don't find the time as much. Um but yeah, I love preparing a meal and I think there's nothing better than like that entire process. Cause again, I love process. So when you lose <laughs> out the process, it becomes weird. Um, I do also love eating out because some, you're usually doing it with somebody else. And right. uh, I, I love that group thing, but I also just love finding like really good food from people that have put their heart and soul into it yeah. and, and yeah. being able to explore things that I couldn't make or wouldn't have known about. Um, I think it's all part of that ecosystem bit. What is one what is one recipe that you can share with us maybe uh, right now that you find yourself coming back to and cooking for the people that you love? Um, that's a really, really good question. I will say that something that I just love and that I make myself, but I also just love eating as well. And it's like my default is I just love the variety of and the, and the goodness and the wholesomeness of dal. And dal seems like such a basic food, right? Like I think I got yelled at a few times from people <laughs> for ordering dal at restaurants because they're like, why would you pay for something when you're going out that's just so basic, this and that, right? And I'm like, yo, dal. Was that me? I feel like I've said that before. <laughs> yo, dal is the truth. You know, the dal is just, there's something about it from a spiritual perspective, from a culinary perspective, from the different types of, of uh, legumes and lentils that you can, beans that you can use to make it. And and I've we've been experimenting, both Manira and myself, with different types of dal as well. And, and there's just something about it that just... Uh, that's like my go-to, like deep love, uh, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's simple, you know what I mean? You, you use some good like quality spices and like, you know, non uh, Monsanto style, style uh, you know, stuff, you, you'll be good. Yeah, I no, I love that you answered though. I think that's so also on brand <laughs> of like being like the catalyst, kind of like being in the background, like that has to be on that spread, but that maybe is not going to be talked about as much as the celebrities or the artists that you've worked with. That doll is like a staple. That doll is that comfort. And, you know, as soon as we're done with this interview, I've got some doll in the fridge that was made for uh, Ashura Langar. And so that, you know, that has that, it just, it brings, it brings everything that we've been talking about together. You know, the Langar is the, it's the community aspect, the Hosseini aspect. And I mean, this doll, doll is life, doll is comfort. Also, when you're that sole Muslim person, that's like with a bunch of Muslim artists and musicians really wanting to get down on some meat. And uh, you just yes. don't eat meat. That dal with a with a little bit of uh, bread, 
it's it's been, <laughs> it's been a savior in so many so many instances. So <laughs> that's beautiful. That's amazing. Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time out to to speak to me, to speak to us, speak to our audience, and you know I. I'm very grateful that we got to end season two with you and that we got to end on this sort of topic of building the future from a very specifically community lens rather than looking at what commodities do we want to see on the big screen? You know, you shifted the focus to what kind of community do we want our artists to be living in? And I hope that's um, really grateful. For that. I hope that served as a construct constructive critique in general for all of us looking back at ourselves as well. Because I feel like we we have to be able to do that too, and um, it's been it's been really good talking to you about it. Because I feel like all of us, whoever that is, don't get to talk about it enough. We are delighted to close out our second season with Asadali Jafri and bringing our topic of Muslims in the media full circle. Our second season has had a strong focus on the arts, and we invite you to catch up on any missed episodes where we talk theater, television, and film with folks in the industry. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Artistic Foodies. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to stay tuned for more episodes as well as bonus content. You can also have access to all our episodes at theartisticfoodies.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Halal Fest Incorporated and Gathering All Muslim Artists. See you in Season 3.